Friends, what do you do when you feel deeply agitated and restless? What do you do when you feel weary and uncertain that you can continue running at the race, running at the pace you're living at? What do you do when you suddenly discover that someone has a bitter grudge against you? What do you do when you discover that someone you trusted at a deeply personal level suddenly turns on you? What do you do when it seems at every conceivable turn in your life you see evil going unpunished? People's hateful and harmful actions and words are not held accountable. It seems like life just goes on and the ungodly and unrepentant get whatever they want and you are left without getting what you want. And what do you do when virtues like loyalty and love that we prioritize and esteem in things like family and friendships, what happens when those things are taken advantage of, exploited, trust is lost, and hypocrisy remains covered up? What do you and I do when life just seems like a Ferris wheel of unfairness? You see relationship drama continue. You see sharp division between family and friends, church members and church leaders become even sharper. A sharp divide in your community or school or job place or perhaps living in a divided nation like ours, even though it calls itself a united one. Brothers and sisters, when we are in these types of situations, our hearts can be restless and even broken, right? We're left trying to pick up the pieces of what is left, wondering if you and I can ever love again, ever trust again, ever see the light at the end of the tunnel and endure whatever unpleasant lot we've currently been given in life. What do you do when these burdens become really heavy on your soul and you can't imagine trying to carry them the rest of your life? Well, it's true. Life can sometimes feel overwhelming. We shouldn't deny that because both human experience as well as the scriptures do not deny that. Life can sometimes feel so overwhelming that we find ourselves puzzled, perplexed, uncertain, stuck at a crossroads, not sure if we need to go left or right or forward or backwards or just fall on our face and do nothing. When life feels overwhelming, our thoughts about reality can become cloudy too. We're not as confident as we once were. We're lacking confidence in ourselves confidence in others. Perhaps we're losing confidence that God actually cares about what burdens we're carrying. We might even begin to lack confidence that God will even do anything about the burdens we are carrying. And it can leave us at a standstill, right? We want the burdens to go away and leave our life, and so we think to ourselves, well, then what do I do, pastor? 
Aren't you the professional? Don't you have all the Mr. Fix-It answers from the Bible? Again, it's in these moments we can find ourselves at a loss, at a loss on whether we should say something to that person or say nothing at all. Do something or do nothing at all. Persevere and press onward or give up on that person or maybe just quit whatever it is we're doing that just doesn't seem to be working. We then ask ourselves, do we stay right where we're at or do we just leave? Do we just walk away? Do we just run away from it all? Beloved, what do you do when the heaviest burdens of your life, they don't go away? And the future looks too daunting to consider. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 272. Psalm 55. Psalm 55 is written by David. We see that in the heading above the psalm. David was not only the sweet psalmist of Israel, an anointed king who ruled over God's people, but he also played instruments. So Matt, it's your homeboy right here, right? Jansen? More Matt for this psalm in particular. He played stringed instruments, as we'll see in the heading. Uh, that's why Psalm 55 would have been played with some type of instrument, such as the lyre or harp. And Two times in the psalm, between verses 7 and 8, 19 and 20, we see the word selah. It was most likely some form of an interlude or change of musical accompaniment as they sang the psalm, uh, which would make sense given the inclusion of stringed instruments. And like last week from Psalm 42, this psalm is also a maskal, which basically meant some form of an instruction or contemplative psalm. Uh, largely, Psalm 55 is another psalm of lament. It's a psalm that instructs God's people on how to cry out to God with our pain, but in faith. To do so not in complaining or murmuring, but to cast our laments in faith on him. But this psalm also contains a strong exhortation for the people of God to respond to what the Lord had taught David in his life and apply it to our own. Psalm 55, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. 
destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. This is God's word. And I've given the exact or specific time period that Psalm 55 was written. Uh, given its placement in the Psalter around the other Psalms, and Psalm 50s in particular, it's quite possible it was during the time when David's son Absalom had revolted against him. However, we're not entirely sure. The themes in this Psalm could have happened at multiple different times throughout David's life. Either way, David found himself in a circumstance of life that is very familiar to many people. Many people just like you and I who have faced and will face stressful, fearful, and heartbroken moments. Moments that at times make us wonder how we can keep moving forward with hope in God. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that serve as headings in the form of two questions. I'll repeat them twice. Question number one, how do you respond to stressful, life-changing events in your life? How do you respond to stressful, life-changing events in your life? We'll cover verses 1 to 15 to answer that question. Question number two, how does trusting God Anchor us 
during stressful, life-changing events in our life? How does trusting God anchor us during stressful, life-changing events in our life? And that's verses 16 to verse 23. Let's look at that first question together. How do you respond to stressful, life-changing events in your life? Well, let's see what David did when the bottom fell out on him. Look with me at verses 1 to 3. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint, and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Here David expresses the agony and pain he experienced when specific people were bringing trouble into his life. So who are these trouble-making people? David calls these people, verse 3, the enemy. Which, if you read in light of all 150 Psalms, the enemy is often said to be people who are at enmity with Yahweh, the one true God. So friends, when you're reading the Psalms, don't take verses out of context. Just because you had a little tiff with your Lady at the hair salon does not mean she's your enemy. Or if a guy beats you in golf because he's actually better than you, well, swallow it. Own up to it. You're not Tiger Woods and you never will be. The enemy is something much different than simply how an Arkansas fan views an Oklahoma fan. Or how an introvert and extrovert divide over how to spend their Friday nights. Or whether you prefer a worship band on Sundays or singing a cappella or just with a piano and a guitar. Or debating which is better, mayo or miracle whip. That has been a debate at a table in this church at one time. So when David's using this word enemy here, he's not using it in all these secondary, tertiary, or otherwise meaningless ways. David uses the word the way God eternally defines enemy. The word enemy is used within this context of someone's spiritual status before God. In other words, are you with God, for God, and submitted to God's authority over your life, or are you against him? Are you ignoring him? Are you separated from your God right now? You don't know him. You are right now under the hostile, fierce, just wrath of God. You see, friends, the world is divided up into two types of people. We are either a friend of God or we are an enemy of God. There is no middle ground. The world is not divided up fundamentally into the haves and the have-nots. The world is not divided up in whether you have white skin or a darker skin tone or whether or not you're Republican or Democrat. The world is divided up, eternally speaking, into one of two categories of people. Do you know the triune God of Holy Scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit, or are you spiritually dead and presently rebelling against him? And here David is stating that he's in trouble. But the trouble he's facing are from those who are an enemy of God. In other words, David's enemies are not fundamentally his. They're first God's. 
They're unregenerate. They're unrepentant. They currently live in rebellion to the God who gives them life. They're hostile to God. They're hostile to his law. And they are hostile to those who love and obey our God. Friends, these people don't love God. They don't fear him. They don't worship him. And they don't love those who belong to him. That's why one of the clearest ways you know whether or not someone truly is a Christian is look at their love or the lack thereof love towards other followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just make a caveat here. I say this at least once every five sermons, so let me just make a qualification. True Christians may not like other Christians at times for various reasons. Personalities clash. Interests are extremely different on secondary and tertiary issues. We just might struggle with communication styles. We might be from different parts of the states and how we talk and how we interact. And sometimes that can be a little clunky and hard to get along with. But the absence of love is a very different thing. If there is no evidence of God's spirit granting a person the love of Christ in their hearts. Friends, we only open up our lives to have our hearts filled with unbridled bitterness, hatred, and disdain over time. Without Christ's love filling our hearts, we are unable to love his people as we are called to love his people. Without repentance, And without the gift of the new birth of God's Spirit in our lives, we can all begin to have a hardened heart. A heart that's left to itself, left unchecked, may never even feel God's convictions ever again. And David also says that these are the type of people he's up against. He calls them wicked in verse 3, which just highlights or describes their corrupt motives, their corrupt agenda. Their corrupt words, their attitudes, and their actions overall. Uh, By the way, before we start like pumping up our egos and thinking, yeah, those bad people out there, uh, newsflash, uh, we are all by nature wicked and corrupt in God's eyes. Everybody. We are born wicked and spiritually worthless. Read Romans 3, 10 to 20, Titus 3, verse 3. Those are not the kind of texts you would put in your Christmas cards, by the way. These are the type of texts that humble us when we start beating our chest going, yeah, those are the wicked and I am special. No, you, need, you and I need to first be reminded again and again that apart from God's work of grace and mercy in our life, we are by nature wicked, corrupt, and against this God. Friends, by nature, it is normal for us to hate others and be hated by others. But the wicked in this psalm highlights people in particular who are bringing trouble into David's life. Their corruption, their wickedness is now spilling over into and bumping up against David. You see, David says these people are wicked and they don't care. It's not that they sin and feel convicted about it and own up to it. No, 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 no. They are callous. They are cold-hearted. They never, ever, ever acknowledge their sin against God and against others. Friends, one of the ways you know someone's spiritually self-deceived 
is you rarely, if ever, hear them acknowledge their sin against God or their sin against other people. They are so good at pointing out sin and flaws in others and utterly deceived in seeing their total rebellion against him. These are the type of people David's up against. They're not just hard-headed, they are hard-hearted. And David says in verse 3, in anger they bear a grudge against me. Verse 19 says they do not change and do not fear God. That means their anger has now turned into hatred and their hatred has turned into a hard-hearted bitterness that is spitting poison relentlessly. Uh, Brothers and sisters, it's really good to be reminded though, even those of us who have been born again by God's spirit, accepted into the beloved, we can be tempted to have bitter hearts towards others too. Even in the church, one of the ways the enemy divides churches is through subtle, small cracks in the door. And one of those cracks is unrepentant and undealt with bitterness. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Beloved, resolve today. Ask God to remind you how much he has forgiven you in Christ. And consider what that might mean to begin choosing to love others as a response to God's love towards you. Uh, Friends, the trouble that David says they were bringing into his life, that word can mean wicked or iniquity, but it also has just a broader connotation, vanity, nothingness. In other words, the trouble they were bringing was fruitful and painful and sinful drama into his life. Friends, you understand that our lives become messy and full of unnecessary drama. Not because God isn't good. And not because God isn't working. You know, he is. God is good and he works all things for good. And he loves good and he teaches good. And he only intends to do good. But the messiness and the drama and the troubles of our life is most often because of the sin others bring into our lives or, and, you had to put a little and or in there, because of the sin we bring into other people's lives. You see, this is messy. And we contribute to the mess. Sin is messy. It births trouble. It births problems. It births drama that God never intended. And for David, these wicked, hateful, and troublemaking people, they don't merely make David's plate life fuller, but they drop trouble upon him like bricks falling from a 10-story building. They drop it on him. They bring it down upon him. And it seems like the way it's, it's being emphasized at the beginning of the psalm, it's kind of coming out of nowhere, sort of abrupt. And they don't seem to be leaving anytime soon. Friends, that's why David opens up with feeling restless. They won't leave him alone. 
There is no out of sight and out of mind for David. Everywhere he turns, everywhere he goes, they're still there. His thoughts are racing faster and faster, and it's, it's wearing him out. He's like a man sinking faster and faster into quicksand. His heart is groaning with grief and anxiety and an unsettledness. It's that feeling you get when the tornado siren goes off, and you can't seem to focus much on anything else but that loud, obnoxious noise that is warning you of possible disaster coming your way. It's that feeling you get when you run into that certain someone or that certain someone enters the same room. Once you see them, you suddenly feel very uncomfortable. You wish they would leave because they make you feel uneasy, unsafe, unsettled. You try to focus on what's in front of you and why you came to that store, why you came to that event, why you came to that party, why you even came to that church, but their very presence makes you sick to your stomach and leaves your mind racing and restless. Do you have anyone in your life right now that makes you feel restless? Uneasy? Do you have anyone in your life right now that appears to bring only unnecessary drama into your life? David did. They brought intense pressure and stress. It, it left David feeling stretched. His plates were full. And these people brought nothing encouraging, nothing edifying into his life. They were instead full of conflict, full of themselves, and full of destructive drama. And David doesn't shy away from getting raw, transparent, and vulnerable, does he? He doesn't just reveal that these enemies of God were making him queasy and skittish and emotionally worn out. David also humbly reveals that his fears were getting the best of him. David's fears began to play with his mind. And David's fears began to control his heart. Look at verses 4 to 8 with me. Verse 4, David says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. If David ever had what we label today as a fearful panic attack, this would be an example in David's life. He says, my heart is in anguish within me. The Hebrew means my heart beats violently within me. Am I having a heart attack? Heart palpitations? Is this it? The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. The Hebrew word for overwhelm is the same word used for intense cataclysmic flooding in the Bible. 
cataclysmic flooding like the global flood in Noah's day. Genesis 7 verse 9 reads, And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. They were overwhelmed. Friends, have you ever been so gripped by fear that your heart rate sped up and you felt like you almost couldn't breathe? Have you ever been so afraid or nervous or anxious that the only option you thought you had was to escape and run away? You were so overwhelmed with thinking the worst possible thing was about to happen to you. You thought that the only thing you could do to get relief was to escape. Hide, run away, get out of dodge, quit on, fill in the blank, quick, fast, and in a hurry. Friends, have you ever allowed fear and anxiety to grip you like that before? I know it has for me. I took a zero on a Spanish project in the 10th grade, because I was absolutely terrified, not of speaking Spanish, but of a public presentation in front of 15 students. Yes, I know the irony. I am a pastor, and I now do this for a living. In fact, I know members of this church who were so scared of public speaking or doing anything that would draw the slightest attention to them that I think they pray down heaven that I don't call on them on Sunday nights to pray. Uh, Some have even said their stomachs are churning all Sunday afternoon and evening. And friends, if you just tell me you're feeling that way, I'm not going to call on you. So don't just skip the service thinking that Pastor Blake's going to give you the the, the stomach churning trick again. No, I'm not not here to do that. In all seriousness, when you combine isolation and fear Friends, it can create irrational thoughts in us. It can make us begin to think and fantasize and even strategize ways to run away. To avoid it all. Friends, that was what David was going through. Friends, what about for you? Friends, fear and isolation together. It can make you leave a trying friendship when that friendship might actually be worth working hard at and keeping. It can make you want to leave a stressful job, but the job is paying your bills. And it's been abundantly clear the Lord provided that job for you. And it's been an excellent place for evangelism in this season of your life. Isolation and fear can cause some believers to leave a church prematurely. Instead of staying to work through their discontent over preferences, instead of finding ways they can dive deeper with souls and people rather than nitpick secondary and tertiary preferences, God might have wonderful things in store if they would just humble themselves and persevere. 
Friends, we can also find ourselves leaving a deep, sweet fellowship prematurely because we're avoiding conflict in relationships that need to be dealt with, with love, with peace, with reconciliation. Friends, if you run from a body of believers to go be a part of another body of believers, you're just taking your drama and baggage with you. And the same goes when people come here. That's why we have a membership process. First questions I ask is, why are you here? I'm glad you're here, but why are you here? And if I learn in the story that you've possibly left that other church prematurely and haven't worked through some things significantly that I think that are worth working through, the elders will gently encourage you to have that before you come here. Uh, Friends, we should not avoid and run from hard things. Sometimes they're exactly what we need to grow. Friends, fear and isolation can cause people literally to quit everything, leave town, and literally disappear. About five or six years ago, I, I was in a pastor's fellowship where a man in the group literally went mentally mad. A pastor. I mean, he lost it. He had a mental breakdown. He left his church on a weekday without telling anyone. By the way, I'm going on vacation next Thursday. That's where I'm going. I'm telling you ahead of time. No mental breakdown. It's planned vacation, forecasted. You got the sermon schedule. Everything is good. But a man, this man just left. He went off like three states away. And eventually he wrote an email to his church and some of his pastors of how embarrassed he was how he just took off without any notice. He didn't ask for help. What happened? Well, friends, the stress and opposition he was facing in his church, it overwhelmed him like a flood. And he snapped. Fear and isolation combined together can make us think and do very irrational things. Friends, what is the enticing place that frequently runs across your mind that you think will make it all better? That place you keep referring to is simply a change of scenery, looking for a fresh start, thinking going there will make it all better. It will solve and remove my problems and my pain. Moving there would make all my stress and pressures and life suddenly go away. Friends, that's where David was. He got weak. He got scared. He imagined at leaving his post in Jerusalem and lodging in a wilderness terrain would be better. A deserted place. The word in verse 7 speaks of an uninhabited place location. In other words, David's going, I want to go to the most remote place I can find where there's no more drama, no more messy people bringing trouble, dropping trouble on my life. You see, friends, in David's weakness, just like many of us, he thought the answer to his problems, at least for a moment, at least for a season, might be just to leave me alone. John Calvin once said, we are all good soldiers so long as things go well with us. But when brought to close combat, our weakness is soon apparent. 
But David isn't thinking clearly in the midst of his pain, is he? Notice how in his fears and worries, how everything is being directed back on who? Himself. He says in verse 4, my heart. Again in verse 4, within me, fallen upon me. Verse 4, come upon me. Verse 5, overwhelms me. Verse 5, and then six times in verses 6 to 8, he says, I, 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 I. What do you hear? Me, myself, and I. Fear and isolation produces a almost uncontrollable form of pride. I know will make me feel better. I know what God wants me to do. I know what will fix all this drama in my life. I, 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 and I am going to get out of here and dwell in a remote place like a bird flying off and all will be well, friends, Proverbs 18.1. This is a good one to think about on this passage. Proverbs 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Friends, when we are not doing well spiritually and emotionally, trusting in ourselves is a dangerous, slippery slope. We can break out, the proverb says. We can push back but we can push against all sound judgment. Brothers and sisters, if you're tempted to run, to flee, to avoid community and accountability, push back against submitting to godly authority, or just flat out quit. Quit on a promise you made. Quit on a covenant you've made. Quit on a commitment you've made. Friends, before we quit, before you and I are tempted to say, I'm done, we need to first ask some very important questions. Question number one, have I persistently prayed scripture to my heart before I speak or act? Have I persistently prayed scripture to my heart before I speak or act? In other words, have I consulted God's word in its proper context and prayed that what we read from God's word would instruct and even change our heart? Before you and I make a big decision to jet have you and I first given adequate time to meditate on God's word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? Question number two, have I consulted godly men or godly women who are in a good place themselves, spiritually and emotionally, to speak truth and reason to me? Have I consulted godly men or women who are in a good place themselves, spiritually and emotionally, to speak truth and reason to me? Friends, Galatians 6 says we need believers for at least two of many reasons. One reason, we need to be connected to and committed to a body of believers who know us, is we need believers to gently point out sin in our life, and we need believers to sacrificially carry our burdens with us. 
Listen to Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And whatever it is we decide to share, or whoever we decide to share our anxieties and fears with, friends, it should not also be people who are generally unhappy too. We don't need to become an echo chamber of anger, angry, unhappy, and fearful people. And that might be helpful in some ways for sympathy purposes, but that's not going to get us out of a hole of despair. We need someone standing outside the hole with the rope of faith and reason, not both of us sitting there speaking irrational, fearful things. That's why we need people that can help us get outside of ourselves and help us think rationally, biblically, and wisely. Friends, if we're wanting to get objective, biblical, and reasonable counsel, we must avoid an emotionally charged relationship. We need people who know us well, they know our weaknesses, they know our temperaments, and we should not isolate ourselves to ourselves because those who isolate themselves cast off all sound judgment. Number three, have I considered the effect that my departure from fill in the blank, whatever it is, would have on those around me? Have I considered the effect that my departure, fill in the blank, would have on those around me? So ask a very good question. Would it be helpful or harmful to my family, to my church, to my closest friendships or discipling relationships or to my coworkers or boss? Is now the best time to leave fill in the blank or would it be wiser to wait and see if things get better and I'm thinking clearer? Proverbs 19.2 says, Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Number four, last question. Am I walking in obedience to God to do his perceived will? Or am I running from something or someone out of fear, laziness, and disobedience to God? We're going to be in Jonah in a few weeks, that's going to be a classic example of someone running from God. Am I leaving a situation for a good and better one, or am I simply choosing to run from something that's hard and I don't like it? Have I asked the Lord to reveal in my heart any selfish or sinful motives that first need to be dealt with before I decide to go? These are all good questions to remember. When you and I are tempted to go, when God may be saying you should stay. And in times of fear, it could be right to leave. God could even use circumstances that make staying inconceivably impossible. But those decisions, those important decisions that could affect a lot of people and not just yourself, should not be made hastily or in raw isolation. I've mentioned this quote before, but it is so worth quoting again. Listen to this by Paul David Tripp. He says, fear can overwhelm your senses. It can distort your thinking. It can kidnap your desires. It can capture your meditation so that you spend more time worrying about what others think than about what God has called you to be. 
Fear can cause you to make bad decisions quickly and fail to make good decisions in the long run. Fear can cause you to forget what you know and to lose sight of who you are. Fear can make you wish for control that you will never have. It can cause you to distrust people you have reason to trust. It can cause you to be demanding rather than serving. It can cause you to run when you should stay and to stay when you really should run. Fear can make God look small and your circumstances look large. Fear can make you seek from people what you will only get from the Lord. Fear can be the soil of your deepest questions and your biggest doubts. Your heart was wired to fear because you were designed to have a life that is shaped by the fear of God. Amen, Paul Tripp. But the pain and fears David had experienced were only about to get worse before they got better. Look at me at verses 9 to 11 as we see it continue on in David's life. Verse 9, he says, Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and the trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Here David says the troubles the wicked were bringing were all-encompassing. They're in the city, they're around the city, and they're in the marketplace, the place of commerce and trade, the place where everyone lived, worked, and played. If David turned on the evening news like us, he saw violence in his community. If David swiped down his social media feed, he saw strife, fighting, bickering, backbiting, mudslinging, and hate speech. If David got to know businessmen and businesswomen and judges and lawyers in the community, he only witnessed oppression and injustice. The rich got richer, all exploiting the poor, and those in authority were making it unbearable for its citizens. And those in spiritual authority, like churches for us, were total shams. The sheep were starving and desperately needing good pastors to care for them. David's city, David's hometown, was also in bad shape. But look with me at verse 12. David says, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive. For evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. When you think it couldn't get any worse, David expresses the bottom of the bottom of his deepest pain. He expresses a painful Discovery. In other words, he was caught by surprise. He didn't see it coming. He expresses a painful discovery of the betrayal of a friend. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house and we walked in the throng. Who was David's friend? 
for whatever reason, David doesn't identify his name. But the friend was obviously dear to David. They knew each other intimately. They shared life together, made memories together, took vacations together. They confessed sin and rejoiced together. They hung out as families together, even spiritual worship and praise God together. For many of us, we would say that they were our Sunday school teachers. They were someone who discipled you, or you discipled them. They were the friend you went to church camp with as a teenager. They were the married couple you raised your kids with, with their kids too. They were a friend you served in leadership with. They were a friend you sang in the church choir with. They were the friend you had a Bible study with. They were the friend you thought would go the distance with you, doing life together, growing old together. This person could have been the man or woman you were married to. They made vows to you. They made promises to you. They said before God and in a company of witnesses, they would stick with you till death do us part. But what does David say about this companion, this familiar friend, this man that literally used to walk through the house of God and celebrate the glory of God together with him? Look down at verses 20 to 21. Verse 20, he says, my companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter. In other words, it sounds good. It's flattery. It's saying what I want to hear. Yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Beloved, the pain of betrayal from a trusted friend is like a stabbing with a sword in your back. For David, it was heartbreaking. He had enough drama going on in his life, remember? Enough temptations to run, be all alone, get that holiday in in the back end of a desert somewhere. But this, David says, is where the cut was the deepest. The betrayal of someone he trusted. The betrayal of someone he let down and shared his most intimate memories and counsel and feelings and thoughts with. Friends, the betrayal of a friend or even a spouse is a pain that does not heal easily. When you share a common commitment, when you make a covenant with someone. You open up your heart. I open my heart up. And it's very vulnerable now. In David's case, the friend, did you notice what he did? He violated, he ruptured, he profaned, he desecrated, he broke the covenant they mutually made together. What's even harder? is when that friend turns out to be living a total double life. 
This is not a Paul and Barnabas we're separating in Acts 15 over secondary personnel issues in ministry. I love you, but we're going to agree to disagree and serve in different ways. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a chameleon friend. A Halloween costume friend. Someone who does not love the God they said they loved. Someone who does not repent of known sin in their life and they leave a bad trail of fruit behind them that shows they were never truly of us. Friends, one of the most painful experiences of a Christian, especially also of a pastor, is religious hypocrisy. That's the one thing I miss about living up near New England. People told you to their face if they love Jesus or not, and they pretty much were telling the truth. It made church a whole lot easier. You're really there for largely the right reasons. It's really hard to be a Christian in a place like this because niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Pleasant in large company is not fruit of the Spirit. Who you and I are in private when no one's watching, that's when the true colors will come out. Friends, religious hypocrisy, false converts, it's prevalent in marriages. It's prevalent in churches. But Jesus already knows. Nothing catches him by surprise. Hypocrisy and holiness won't mix together for the long haul. They're not equally yoked. Truth and lies will not be able to live together in peace over the long haul. Eventually, someone's true colors are going to come out in God's time and in God's way. Friends, anytime God's spirit is at work, what has been hidden in darkness is going to be exposed. When God's word is penetrating our hearts, relationships will do one of two things in a church and in a family. And in friendships, they're either going to divide them further because that sharper than any two-edged sword cuts and it convicts and it draws the sheep, but it offends and it hardens the goats. But God's word, when it goes forth, can heal betrayal, backbiting, bitterness, when God's word hits that pain in your heart and stirs up a forgiveness and love you couldn't do in your flesh. CCBC, never, ever be surprised when God is doing hundreds of things in our church's life when we can only see one, two, or three of them. On the one hand, God is saving, convicting, and drawing people into this dear church. Yet at the same time, God will be in his time removing some, perhaps for church discipline, by exposing hypocrisy because of their unrepentant sin, their double life, their false profession of faith. Friends, when God's word goes forth, he begins to rattle our cages, shake them up a little bit, 
Lord, what do you want from me? The Lord might lead some of us to go when we're afraid to go, to go help out that struggling church, to be set apart as missionaries to a people group that doesn't have the gospel. And then some of us are going to be tempted to go when we should stay. That's normal in the life of a church when God is working. He's exposing those unfounded and irrational fears. But when God's working in our hearts, even the most painful betrayals, those painful moments when someone is not who you thought they were, Jesus knows. Jesus cares because Jesus was betrayed by his own. You see, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, shared some of the most intimate moments of life and ministry with our Lord. He saw his miracles. He heard his teaching. He had Bible study with Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't want to sign up for that? He ate with Jesus. He slept in the same house with Jesus. He hung out with Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He partook of the Last Supper with Jesus, or at least was there in the upper room before he would betray Christ. Christ, knowing ahead of time that he would betray him, still stooped down to wash his feet. Judas betrayed Christ for money. Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss. All for the approval and praise of people he feared more than God. Judas is the prime example of someone looking for love in all the wrong places. Yet Jesus knew all this would happen. He wasn't like David who was caught by surprise. Jesus knew who the father gave him and who the son of perdition would be. Friends, in Judas's betrayal towards Christ, Satan had entered his heart to act on his greedy and selfish desires. Friends, did you know that betrayal is one of Satan's most ancient schemes in human history? And he's still doing it in people's lives today. But in Jesus' great love for us, he continued in obedience to his Father, to the cross. He died on that tree even when the 11 disciples, 12 minus 1 on Judas, all denied him in their weakest moments. And in love, he went to that cross to die for countless sinners who have betrayed others in their life too. Sinful divorces, adultery, and faithful or faithless abandonment. Jesus died for those sins. Lying, bitterness, grudges, slander, backbiting, gossip. Jesus died for those sins. Cowardliness, fear of man, unbelief, disobedience. Jesus died for those too. Friends, Jesus died for all of us who have betrayed Christ. Every time we've chosen to do things our way instead of our, his way. Friends, Christ died on the cross. God raised him from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he now intercedes for all of us who turn to him in faith repenting of our sins, knowing that he is praying for us when we've been deeply wounded and betrayed. 
He is praying for us when we have betrayed others and needing to make it right with them. Friends, he's praying for us when we're tempted to run when we should stay, when we're tempted to quit when we should persevere. And friends, haven't we too failed to be the friend that others thought we were too? Before we view ourselves like Jesus, like David, have we held a standard for friendship towards others that we don't meet ourselves? Friends, we ought to own that. Confess it to the Lord and say, Lord, make me a better friend that has the aroma of Christ in my friendships with others. So what did David do? When stress, pressure, and a painful discovery of betrayal happened by a friend, he prayed. Verses 1 and 2, he called on God to listen to him and to answer him. Verse 9 and verse 15, he prays what is more commonly known as imprecatory prayers, prayers for God to bring justice, asking God to disrupt the wicked's plans and to give unrepentant sinners what they deserve. But even in the midst of stressful times, friends, we might not know what we should pray for, should we? (laughs) David's moaning. He's restless. But take heart, our great high priest can hear even the most feeble and faintest prayers. Thomas Manton once said, one way to get comfort is to plead the promise of God in prayer. Show him his handwriting. God is tender of his word. Richard Sibb says, God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. So does prayer really work? The burdens that are weighing down on your soul today, what's prayer going to do? Leads to question number two. How does trusting God anchor us during stressful, life-changing events in our life? Let's just follow the progression of what David learned in his season of great trial. Look at verse 16. But I call to God, and I want us to say this together, and the Lord will save me. Unlike his friend who would leave David, turn out to be not the person David thought he was and care nothing for David in the end, the Lord will save David. Unlike his friend, the Lord will stick with David, care for David, lead David, preserve David, sustain David, and deliver David in whatever way the Lord seems best for David. I call to God and the Lord will not might, not maybe, will save me. Verse 17, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Here's one of those texts that helps us see that David looks at prayer not as a 30-second wish list that he throws up to heaven before he starts his busy day and then just moves on with life. No, he knows that he is needy all day, every day. And he knows that God is available to him all day, every day. Friends, you know what that means? God's throne room is not like a bank. 
No offense, Jason. Working on a bank's good. He doesn't just close at five. Well, I had enough prayers for the day. Sorry, catch you tomorrow. Voicemail, leave it. The angels will tell me. No, it's not how it works. His throne room never has a closed sign hanging on the door. There is never a holiday where God takes a break from shepherding our lives. There is never a day off where Jesus Christ isn't praying mightily and effectually for us, or there is never a day, even when we've blown it, that he is ashamed to call us his own. He knows us by name. He loves each one of us with a love that no friend, no parent, no spouse, no pastor, no son or daughter could ever come close to. He's a lover. He's a friend. He's a commanding officer all in one person. Jesus can be prayed to day and night whenever we are in trouble, and he will, not might, not maybe, will hear our voice. Verse 18, he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage. Notice what David says, for many are arrayed against me. Friends, if you are tempted like I am, when you're facing particularly human beings as burdens in your life, one of the best ways to start off on the right foot is going, God, you're bigger than them. I'm afraid, but, but you're bigger. God is bigger than every burden he will ever call you to carry. He's bigger than every person, bigger than every boss, bigger than every enemy, bigger than even the worst betrayal. He is bigger, he is stronger, and he is able to equip us and empower us for Christ. In Christ, we can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 19, God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. Friends, the eternal God has the power to give sinners eternal life. And our eternal God has the power to punish sinners with eternal punishment. He truly is a mighty Savior who is able to save the proudest sinners. Friends, that's why you and I even sing and celebrate and pray to him today. He humbled us by his grace and made us want him, enabled us, effectually called us to himself. Friends, pray for those people in your life right now that are bringing trouble into it. Pray because God is able to humble them better than we can. There is a time and a place to rebuke, confront, correct, and speak the truth in love. There is a place for that. Pray for wisdom on when to do that. But there is a time and a place to tell God, this is too bigger for me. This is too big. This is something greater than even just a personal one-to-one. Give space for God to humble us 
and to humble them. Friends, the scriptures are abundantly clear. If we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you in due time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As we close, David turns from writing about his own experience of seeing his big God helping with his big burdens, and now he turns to the reader. David's got a testimony. He's been raw. He's been vulnerable. He's been transparent. He's been pouring out his heart in this psalm, going, I'm showing you my fears. I'm showing you my groaning. I'm showing you my temptations. I'm showing you what God's taught me. And now he turns to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. What does he tell us to do with those burdens that seem so big in our life? Look at verse 22 and 23. He says, cast your burden on the Lord. What are those burdens for you? Just write it right next to the word. And what? He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live up half their days, but I will trust in you. For those of you who really enjoy word studies, this is the dynamite word of the entire psalm. The word burden there in the Hebrew, it's only used in the entire Old Testament right there. You know what it is? You know what it means? What is given to you. Oh, this is one of those sovereignty of God texts. Oh, yeah, we're back there again. Given to you by who? Cast what has been given to you back to the one who gave it to you. It literally just means whatever has providentially fell in your lap, filled your plate, weighed down your back, cast it, throw it back to God in humble, dependent, earnest prayer. A few years ago, author and pastor Tim Challies suddenly lost his 20-year-old son in an unexpected death. In his book, Seasons of Sorrows, he talks about missing his son and struggling with how to face the burden of his son's death. Listen to what he says in light of the principle we're learning from verse 22 about casting your burdens on the Lord. Listen to what he says. This life is a dash, a blip, a vapor, yet just as truly a slog, a marathon, a long and wearying pilgrimage, I have begun to notice that while the brevity of life is best seen in retrospect, it's the slowness of life that tends to be felt in the moment. It may be brief as we look back on it, but it's long as we live it. And it feels long today. It looks long today. It looks long as I gaze into the future and see a road laid out before me that may well lead through months, years, and decades. It looks longer still as I consider the heavy burden of grief God has called me to carry. 
I am confident I can carry a great weight for a short distance, but far less confident that I can carry it for many miles or many years. I just don't know how I will bear up under this sorrow if I have to carry it all the way to the end. My father was a landscaper, and he used to take me to work with him from time to time. I remember one day when he brought me with him to be an unskilled but low-cost source of manual labor. He showed me a skit of bricks that had been delivered to the end of a client's driveway and then a walkway he was building up to the front door. My job was to get the bricks from the first spot to the second. I remember gazing at that giant pile with despair. How could I, at 12 or 13 years of age, possibly move what I looked, what looked like a literal ton of bricks? I realized I would have to do it in the only way I could, piece by piece, brick by brick, step by step. I carried each one to my father. He laid them as quickly as I could bring them to him until a perfect path led to the entrance of that beautiful home. And just so, while God has called me to bear my grief for a lifetime, And to do so faithfully, he has not called me to bear the entire weight of it all at once. As the pile is made up of many bricks, a lifetime is made up of many days. The burden of a whole lifetime's grief would be far too heavy to bear. And the challenge of a whole lifetime's faithfulness far too daunting to consider. But the God who knows my frailty has broken down that assignment into little parts little days, and has promised a grace that is sufficient for each one of them. My challenge for today is not to bear the grief of a lifetime or to be faithful to the end, but only to carry today's grief and only to be faithful on this one little day that he has spread out before me. And I am confident that by his grace, I can carry out today's assignment. I am confident that I can bear the burden of this day's sorrow until night falls and my eyes close in rest. I am confident that I can be faithful in today's calling for as long as the day lasts. I don't need to think about tomorrow or next week or next year. I don't need the strength to carry the burdens of any other day or the resolve to remain faithful through any other circumstance. My God-given task began this morning and extends only until tonight. Then, when I awake again tomorrow with the dawning of a new day, I will awaken to new blessings, new strength, and new grace that will allow me to be strong and faithful through that lay as well. In just that way, brick by brick, step by step, day by day, he will lead me. He will keep me. He will enable me to be strong and faithful in all that he calls me to. And as I serve my Father in the assignment he has given me, I know that each brick, each step, each day is bringing me a little closer to the entrance of that great home he is preparing for me. Cast your burden on the Lord. Brick by brick, day by day. Christ bore our greatest burden. 
which was our sin against God. If he has bore that for us, he will sustain us through whatever other burden he calls us to bear. And as David ends this psalm, I can trust in you. Do you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we praise you as the God who is able not merely to take away our burdens, but to sustain us with them in our life. Father, we pray that we would think well about when we are tempted to be afraid or we are anxious or we are worried to run and hide thinking that running will make all things better. Lord, stop us in our tracks. Help us think well about how to consult your word, consult you in prayer, consult other godly men and women who can help us. Father, you can sustain us, and you will sustain us. Lord, you are trustworthy. Lord, help us even now as we are reminded of what Christ bore in our place. He bore our burden of sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen.